1: This was the week when we learned that not only does Britain have the worst coronavirus death toll in Europe, but its economy has taken a much heavier beating than its G7 rivals too. It was no great surprise to learn the economy is in recession, but the second quarter fall in gross domestic product of 20.4% was staggering in its scale. There was plenty of blame being cast around.
2: We need to have targeted financial backing. We haven't had that sufficiently yet, from the Conservative government. And we really need it. I think until we have that, we'll continue to see potentially a deeper recession in the UK than in other countries.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider's guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times. And for one week only, while Seb's away on holiday, welcome to Parker's Politics with me, George Parker, the FT's political editor. I've been dying to say that. And don't worry... Normal service will resume next week when Seb is back. At the top, you heard Labour's Shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodd speaking to the BBC this week and criticising the government's business support schemes. In this episode, we'll be discussing the state of the British economy. Is the government at least partly to blame? And what's going to happen next in a very difficult autumn for the Chancellor Rishi Sunak? And later, we'll be looking at the exams fiasco, which has caused so much distress to students shaken politicians both north and south of the border. But first, I'm joined by Delphine Strauss, our economics correspondent, and Alice Hancock, whose Leisure Industries beat includes some of the most exposed parts of our economy, travel and hospitality, to look at the numbers and the reality on the ground. Hello, Delphine. Hello there, George. And hello, Alice. Hi, George. Now, thanks for joining us. Can I start by asking you both, how you've coped with working through London's heatwave this week and whether you've got any tips for surviving what we've been told were tropical nights.
2: Yeah, well, if you're working with children at home, as I am, then you'd send them out in the garden with the hosepipe and the water pistols.
1: Brilliant plan.
3: I have to say, if Boris wants us all to go back to work, I recommend the heatwave to continue because I escaped to the office on Friday and the aircon was delightful.
1: (laughs) I've been coming into the House of Commons partly for that reason because our office has no window and there's also an incredible ice latte down in the House of Commons canteen. So, look, Delphine, the week was dominated, I guess, by the bleak economic data produced by the Office for National Statistics. Have we ever seen anything like it?
2: We haven't, no. This is the biggest slump since GDP figures began in 1955 by quite some margin. It is also the biggest fall in productivity since the three-day week, I believe.
1: And Labour are calling it Johnson's Jobs Disaster – and I blaming the Prime Minister for his mishandling of the pandemic, particularly at the start, for making things worse. Is it his fault? So a
2: lot of people are certainly saying that the reason Britain looks so appalling next to most other major economies is simply because we had a longer lockdown. Shops were shut for 50 days in Germany, 84 days in the UK. And what do you know, we have a downturn that's twice as deep as Germany's. Whether we had that longer lockdown because we were late to the party and started too late, well, that's certainly something you you can argue.
1: What's the counter-argument? Because uh, I suppose the Treasury would say, well, it's partly because Britain has a services dominated economy and that was the part of the economy that was most affected.
2: Quite a few economists have been putting that forward. It might explain a small part of the difference between the UK and others, but not very much. We have a notably bigger service sector than Germany, but not very different from France at all, not very different from a lot of other economies. So I think it explains a bit of it.
1: Okay. Now, let's let's talk about the situation on the ground. Four-fifths of the economy is based on services, but obviously the sector is incredibly diverse. How are the different parts of Britain's leisure industries faring in this crucial month of August?
3: Well, I can't say that any of them are faring particularly well. August is always a quiet month for the ledger sector. Typically, people go abroad. And of course, even though people are still at home, we are all actually at home rather than going out at home, as it were. I mean, there are bits that are picking up. Certainly, the eat out to help out scheme has sent people out to restaurants and they've had a big pickup in sales on the Monday to Wednesday when you can go and claim your £10 discount
1: kindly funded by the Treasury. And can I just ask about that? Hmm. On Eat Out to help out, has it just shifted dining patterns where Monday is the new Friday, or has it led to a genuine boost in the take-up of meals?
3: Well, interestingly, a lot of people expected it to displace weekend trade, but actually it hasn't had a major effect. There has been some cannibalisation, so some operators have told me that they've actually seen a dip on Thursdays. But given that's one day of the week and that Monday, which used to be the typically quiet day, has now been so popular... The effect hasn't been as much as some people feared. I think the real problem for the restaurant industry has is, of course, it sounds very nice and you get lots of nice Sunak snacks and Rishi's dishes headlines, but they've got some really fundamental issues facing them come September when this scheme runs out and they've got to start paying rents because a moratorium on evictions ends. Then in October, the furlough scheme ends and these businesses can't easily handle having had three months of lockdown and then social distancing, reducing capacities by sort
1: of 50%. And how about the tourism sector? Because anyone trying to book a holiday at the moment down in Devon or Cornwall or Suffolk, for example, the Lake District for that matter, will tell you that it looks like it's doing pretty well. Everything seems to be full.
3: Yeah. I mean, actually, I spoke to the chief executive of one of the UK's biggest holiday cottage accommodation online platforms. And he said they normally have 100,000 phone inquiries in July, and this year they had a million. So yeah, there has been a huge spike in domestic staycations. I don't think that will completely offset the fact that the industry lost basically more than half of its season. It lost three or four bank holidays during lockdown. And then, of course, people are still hesitant about going out. I mean, the holiday accommodation, sort of self-catering is doing better because people feel safe in a contained house. But the hotel occupancy levels are still extremely low as people don't really want to mix. And I think also there's a slight suggestion that the face mask, having to wear those out has put people off, especially in this heat.
1: Now, Delphine, the Chancellor insists that he won't extend his job-saving furlough scheme beyond the end of October, even for parts of the economy that are still suffering badly. Do you think he can hold that line?
2: So there was some good news in the data we had this week. It did show that the recovery that began in May and then picked up in June was a little stronger than we'd expected. And so I imagine what the Chancellor is hoping is that things pick up more than we would thought over the summer. And it turns out when we come to September, October, and the furlough scheme is nearing its end, that perhaps there isn't as much of a acute need to extend it as we think there is at the moment. And it's a sort of wait and see if you can hold
1: the line. I think he genuinely believes that people are trapped on the furlough scheme and those jobs might not come back. Do we have any idea how many people are still on the furlough scheme?
2: Yes, so the Office for National Statistics had a figure for the number of people who were temporarily away from work. That was still at 7.5 million in... June, but about 5 million of those they think were on furlough. There's a sort of level of people that you would expect to be away on holiday or sick or for whatever reason, even in normal times. So that was their estimate for June. And then I think there's also some survey data from the Bank of England that shows it's come down again in July. We don't know how many. And we don't know whether people who have come off furlough have moved into unemployment or have
1: gone back to their employer. So basically the chances flying blind to a certain extent, but potentially millions of people facing the loss of their job once the furlough scheme ends.
2: Yes, very possibly. At the moment, there are some schemes about to get up and running to try and address these problems. There's a the Kickstarter scheme that will be for young people who fall into long-term unemployment, and that is supposed to be up and running in the autumn with capacity for, I think, maybe 100,000 jobs. But getting that scheme going is quite fraught, and it's only the tip of the iceberg.
1: And Alice, do you think that parts of the hospitality and leisure sector can survive without an extended furlough scheme to help them through the difficult autumn and winter months?
3: It's a good question. There was actually a survey by the trade body, which covers all of the hospitality industry, so restaurants, hotels, pubs, and so on. And they're estimating that one in five businesses will go Into administration or some form of insolvency by the end of the year, simply because of social distancing cutting capacity so much, as I said. And already, I think the Centre for Retail Research estimated that there's been around 22,000 job losses from the sector, which doesn't, in the greater scheme of things, sound very much, but the majority of the sector still does have its staff on furlough because they can't quite work out how many staff to bring back in order to keep it in line with demand because they can't afford to bring back anyone surplus. finances are so lean.
1: And Delphine, the Bank of England predicted that the economy would reverse its losses by the end of 2021. I know that a lot of economists think that's overly optimistic. What's your view?
2: The big thing that will determine it is how far unemployment rises. And that is why either extending or replacing the furlough scheme with other forms of support could be critical. There are other ways you could try and mitigate unemployment other than extending it. A lot of people are saying that the more generous jobless benefits that were put in place at the start of the crisis should become permanent and possibly more generous again. A lot of the business groups are calling for cuts in um, employers' national insurance contributions to cut the cost of hiring across the board. So that is a way of paying people to work rather than paying people not to work as it were, or subsidising people to work. And then there's also, you know, can the public sector do more to create jobs, not just green jobs, infrastructure jobs, but perhaps also actually doing something more serious about social care.
1: And the government's gradually phasing out its furlough scheme, isn't it? And gradually asking employers to start to pay more of the costs. Do you think we're going to start to see some of that unemployment crystallising well before the end of October?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's already crystallising. So we had a wave of companies announcing redundancy plans at the start of July. And that was in order to complete consultations before the August deadline, when they first had to begin contributing to the costs of the furlough scheme. They will be gradually required to contribute more up to October when support ends. And I'm sure we'll be seeing more redundancy plans coming through.
1: And finally, Alice, you were saying the domestic tourism sector is doing pretty well for the month of August. How about travel companies offering holidays abroad, trying to contend with this ever-changing picture of quarantines being introduced by the government? Are people still taking holidays abroad, or is that too much of a gamble?
3: One travel advisor described it to me as the quarantine hokey-cokey, just because travel companies can't really figure out which countries are um, and which countries off, especially after Spain they only gave six hours notice that they would be putting 14-day quarantines on all travellers returning from there. That said, a lot of people are sort of transferring holidays, especially those who've booked package destinations. They're saying, okay, Spain's gone off, so I'll switch my holiday to Greece. And most of the operators are letting them do that. We're expecting possibly France, Malta, the Netherlands to be added to the list, which isn't such a problem for the package holiday companies as they aren't typical package destinations. But It will have a big impact for the airlines, of course, and the hotels, and also for inbound tourism. France is, I think, one of our biggest inbound tourism markets. And so all the attractions in London and all the sort of Oxford, Cambridge, Bath, these beautiful cities are going to have a real dearth of revenues this year because there's no one visiting as much. And domestic tourists tend to go to the sort of beautiful rural areas rather than go and see sites necessarily because we sort of know what the sites are on our doorstep. Have either of you managed to get abroad this summer? I'm hoping to escape to Italy, but everything's fingers crossed and touch wood. (laughs)
1: Delphine?
2: Uh, I am off to the Lake District in a couple of days' time, and I'm hoping that the lockdown doesn't spread
1: any further north than Preston. (laughs) Thanks very much, Delphine and Alice.
2: Thanks,
3: George. Thanks, George.
1: It's mid-August, which means results time for school students. Of course, the pandemic meant that this year's cohort of school leavers were unable to sit exams. Instead, results received by A-level students this week were calculated using a combination of previous results, teacher assessments and the past performance of schools. But this algorithmic approach hasn't quite made the grade. There was a public outcry in Scotland in response to predicted grades awarded to many students, which led to the scrapping of 125,000 secondary school results earlier this week is Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, doing her best to repair the damage.
2: Our concern, which was to make sure that the grades young people got were as valid as those they would have got in any other year, perhaps led us to think too much about the overall system and not enough about the individual pupil. So despite our best intentions, I do acknowledge that we did not get this right, and I'm sorry for that.
1: In England, the government made a last minute attempt to avoid a similar fiasco over A level results by allowing pupils who had their exams cancelled this year to use mock test grades as a final result. On Wednesday, Education Secretary Gavin Williamson apologised to students for school closures and disruption to exams, making this impassioned plea on the BBC. I'm fighting for every single child. I'm not just fighting for my own children, I'm fighting for
4: every child out there. All I want to see is children
1: to have a sort of joy and the experience of being back in school. There was anger across the board. No Tory prime minister likes to cross the Daily Mail, but that paper's front page summed up the mood. You dunces, the paper's headline said. To discuss this sorry tale, I'm joined by Bethan Staton, our education correspondent, and Muir Dickey. Our Scotland correspondent, hello to you both.
5: Hello. Hello. I'm
1: going to start with you, Muir, because the first signs of a system in serious trouble came in Scotland. Can you quickly explain what system was used in Scotland, bore many similarities to the one used elsewhere in the UK, and why it was canned almost immediately?
4: The instruction from the Scottish Government to the Qualifications Authority was to come up with results that would be as close as possible to what pupils would have had if they'd been able to set their exams. Crucially, they wanted those results to be comparable with previous years. A system of moderation was drawn up by the Scottish Qualifications Authority, and that meant that the end result was broadly in line with the kind of results we would have had had it been a normal year. But in the process of doing that... It meant that teachers' estimates, which were the, supposed to be the fundamental factor of which the results were based, uh, were adjusted. And those adjustments, where pupils' results were downgraded, fell more heavily on relatively deprived pupils and less on the affluent. And there were very clear cases of what I think most people would describe as unfairness, where exceptional pupils in relatively underperforming schools had their results very dramatically downgraded had there not been this U-turn the result that they would not have been able to go to university or to pursue other paths that they'd been expecting to be able to do.
1: Did nobody stop to think this would be palpably unfair to a bright student, or indeed a bright cohort of students, from a school with poor past results? The SNP can't say it wasn't warned. Right from the
4: beginning, there were a lot of questions about the approach that the Qualifications Authority was going to take. It said early on that this kind of moderation based on schools' past performance would only be part of its approach, but it seems to have been very much of the dominant part. And there were repeated warnings from experts and opposition parties over the last few months about this as a possible result. But even after the results confirmed those concerns, the SNP leadership defended the process for nearly a week.
1: Gavin Williamson, Bethan, the English Education Secretary, was sure that the system south of the border was much more robust how was it different? And if it was so good, why did he change it at the 11th
5: hour? The system was quite similar to the Scottish system of, of moderation. There were some tweaks and the off-calls algorithm, as far as I understand, didn't only moderate according to a school's past performance. It took in different factors. However, when the results came out yesterday, the amount of downgrades was actually much more than the Scottish version about in England were downgraded or adjusted downwards, as Ofcore would say, compared to about 25% in Scotland. Gavin Williamson obviously anticipated that this was going to cause something of a firestorm. And at the last minute, decided to allow students to appeal using their mock grades. Now, this caused quite a lot of confusion. And the way it was sort of issued was quite confused and actually ended up causing more confusion and unease than reassurance for students and and teachers.
1: But I think the thing that would baffle many students and their parents is that Ofqual, the exams body, and Mr. Williamson had had months to think about this. Why on earth didn't this occur to them earlier? And why were they changing the system at the last minute?
5: Well, I think that's the million dollar question. And unfortunately, the habit of changing things at the last minute and perhaps issuing press releases that don't really seem to be fully kind of reasoned out, seems to become a bit of a feature of the current Department for Education's lockdown strategy.
1: Yes, now Muir, the Labour Party is calling for exam results to be awarded according to the original predicted grades, which is ultimately, of course, what happened in Scotland. But doesn't that undermine the integrity of the system? And won't people in Scotland always look at the results of the class of 2020 with a degree of scepticism?
4: That's the risk. And that's why the government stressed comparability with previous years in its original instruction. I think, though, given the dramatic unfairness of individual cases that had been exposed after the results were issued, they felt that politically they had no choice. It's interesting, the teacher estimates have been reinstated when it comes to results that were downgraded, but the ones that had been upgraded from the teacher estimate remain, you know, so that it's it's an asymmetrical fix, you could call it a bodge. But what the Scottish government will be hoping is that by removing the most extreme cases of unfairness, that the political route dies down. And I think people will perhaps have an understanding that this has been an exceptional year. The case for giving comparable results for a cohort that had not had by any stretch the same amount of education was itself a value judgment that's a kind of an emergency case. So this year is going to be a strange year for everybody. The question I think now is whether they can make it a one year aberration and whether or not it provokes any more deep thinking about the role that these all or nothing exams play in our society and in sorting out the life chances of our young people.
1: Now, Bethan, do you think, I suppose this is a big question, do you think Gavin Williamson will stick to his guns now? Or do you think ultimately he'll go down the Scottish route and basically go with the original projected results?
5: There's been a lot of speculation about whether a U-turn is in the works. Westminster's been very insistent that it will keep the standardisation model. It's really doubled down on it. Um, And the reason for that is because they're very worried about grade inflation and grades becoming devalued. There's also the added problem now, grades have been released and students have had their university places accepted or not, that if they just recall the system and allow students to take their teacher predicted grades, it will potentially be absolute chaos. What will happen to university offers? It's very difficult to see how that would kind of pan out in what already is a very chaotic clearing year for university admissions.
1: Is the saving grace for Mr Williams that universities are so desperate for students to fill places, given that many international students won't be coming here this year, they'll accept much lower grades?
5: I think it's definitely the case for some universities. I spoke to quite a lot of both university admissions people and students and colleges. One sixth form head I spoke to said that About 50% of students' grades had been adjusted down at the college, but the vast majority, almost without exception, all were accepted to their universities of choice. So there's definitely been a degree of leniency. I think where it will be a problem is at the really competitive universities. So Oxford said that any students that are appealing their grades will have to wait until 2021 to start at university. Obviously, It's not great news for young people who are now going to be graduating in a recession. Are they going to be able to find a job?
1: Now, Muir, finally, people often say that the SNP government at Holyrood gets away with an awful lot in terms of its own record, perhaps through a lack of effective scrutiny. Is that true? And do you think the exams disaster will change that? Well, right in the, the middle of the furore,
4: but before the U-turn, YouGov did an opinion poll which suggested that the Scottish National Party would win an extraordinary 57% on the constituency vote in next May Scottish parliamentary elections and 47% on the uh, proportional representation list vote. It would mean an SNP majority So, yes, this kind of very public, very humiliating setback doesn't appear in the short term, at least, to be undermining the SNP's prospects. And part of that is perceived dearth of effective opposition in Scotland. And the other part is the perception among many people in Scotland that even if things aren't being done very well in Scotland, they're being done even more badly
1: down south. And it was at least a clean apology and U-turn by Nicola Sturgeon, I guess.
4: Yeah, when, when they u turn they do it with the handbrake on. You know, there was plenty of apology. There was taking of responsibility. They refused to blame the bureaucrats. And they have retained John Swinney, the Education Secretary, although this is the, the latest in quite a long series of setbacks for him and the ed- education brief. So critics of the SNP will say their humility is for PR purposes rather than genuine. But I think what we've seen so far, it seems to have mollified many of the most uh, critical pupils and they've even drawn praise for being willing to correct their mistakes.
1: Muir and Bethan, it was a pleasure to have you on.
5: Great. Thanks, George. Take
1: care. And that's it for this week's episode. If you like Payne's Politics, we'd recommend subscribing to this podcast. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented this week by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder, Liam Nolan and Breen Turner.